Amen. It was a bright, clear morning when a large crowd was gathering at the Niagara's fall. Why were they gathering there? Because they wanted to see this famous uh, Blondin, was his name. They wanted to see him walk over the falls on a tight rope. Can you imagine? My hometown has something similar. I think once a year or something like that, there's a man who actually walks on a tightrope from one building to the next, and, and all the crowd is watching downtown. So imagine there on the Niagara's Fall, oh my, it's far deeper walk on a rope. The sun was glistering on the cascades, and they were rushing over this long, huge precipice. Can you imagine? And below came the ceaseless thunder of the plunging cataracts, the world's greatest tightrope walker briefly tested the taut, taut stand, strand that reaches across to the opposite bank. Then he takes his long pole uh, to balance himself and he starts to go across. Now the cr crowds are following every moment with tense things. Step by step he's moving forward and the people on the shore are reacting with nervous Thoughts, every sharp motion of the balancing pole, will he make it, will he not? Fears, forebodings that, however, were unnecessary. Why? Because the great Blondin not only went across safely, but he returned to the great relief and admiration of all the spectators. But he then turns to the crowd and he asks the audience, making a sensational offer. He would cross the falls again, this time with someone on his back. Any volunteer who was willing to do this. No one was rushing forward, obviously, to accept the offer. And at random, now Blondin began to ask, Do you believe that I'm able to carry you across? And the person would say, Oh, yes, sir, I, I, I do believe that you're a great uh, uh, Blondin. And so Blondin answered, Let's go. Oh, no, no, Mr. Blondin, I'm sorry. Not on your life. I'm not going to go through this. So on and on, he asked one after the other, and everyone were, were expressing great confidence on Mr. Blondin. But one, no one wanted to dare to let Blondin take them across. And finally, you have a young fellow who moves toward the front of the crowd. Blondin repeats the question. And this time, to the surprise of the question, are you willing to let me to bring you across? He says, as a matter of fact, I am, sir. So the young man climbs into the expert's back. Blondin steps into the rope and he paused momentarily. Then he moves across the falls without difficulty. What does this story tell us? That, that many in that crowd indeed believed that Blondin could do such a thing. They believed it, that he was an expert. But there was only one boy who was willing to actually trust his life and trust him to do it. And that, friends, in many ways, is what we see in our story tonight. Familiar story of David and Goliath, that all God's people claim to believe in God, claim to care for the honor of God. But when, the, when they get into the battle, when there is this unsurmountable giant Goliath, only one boy, David, an unlikely candidate at that, actually does what needs to be done 
Well, but why? Because of his trust in the one who has power over death. This is the nature of David's faith behind the story of David and Goliath here in 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 to 58. So last time, as you remember, we began this cycle of stories from episodes from the life of David. Because we're interested in diagnosing the heart of David, a man after God's own heart. We looked at the disobedience, however, of Saul. Because Saul was everything that David was not, essentially. Ultimately, his disobedience had led Saul to lose the kingdom. And now God had found, from our last chapter 15 to here in 17, had found a man after God's own heart. And that was David. He anoints him through Samuel the prophet, who is, by the time that Samuel finds him, just a humble shepherd boy. Unlike Saul, he's not chosen for outward appearance. Saul was a physical giant, by the way. In uh, chapter 10, verse 23, we are commented of the high stature of, of, of Saul. And now you have this giant Goliath. It's a striking appearance once again. And yet, you know how Saul, despite the appearance, had rebelled in pride and he became recklessly jealous over David. However, David is chosen because of his heart after God. He was not a perfect person. Yet he was tender, generous, a man of action, loyal, honest, contrite. Pointing to the overall theme of this book of Samuel, of what constitutes the true call for service. That Samuel and David are contrasted to the previous characters of Saul and Eli, and his sons particularly. David here in the story is God's special anointed deliverer. Samuel uh, if you look at chapter 16, it was incredible. In incredulity, he had anointed David because he didn't believe that his appearance amounted to much. But what did God tell uh, Samuel? Do not look at his outward appearance. Men look at appearance, but God looks at the heart. And now we see how this anointing, it is immediately empowering David to this great victory. And bo the book of Samuel now leaves the, all the contracts that we saw between Samuel and Saul. And now we begin this cycle of interaction between Saul and David. Ultimately the persecution of David from Saul. And there is a progressive, however, rise of David. Paralleled by the progressive downfall of Saul. Ultimately, as we mentioned, Saul dies suicidal in battle. And David becomes the king of Israel. And it ends the, the book of Samuel, the first Book of but here we see already the inception of the future history. David rising to the throne. Because David anointing is now bringing the fruit as God's favor is upon him. David soon rises to prominence. In fact, we look at this story. It becomes a hero overnight. But why? Because God's hand was behind him. Not only he becomes the musician in Saul's court. It's already started in chapter 17, but here, all of a sudden, he becomes a national hero. However, this starts in next chapter, a cycle of persecution and opposition from Saul. Now, you remember the reference I gave you last time, David kill is 10,000, and how that stirred Saul to jealousy. The whole issue, remember, in this book of Samuel is Israel of rejection of God as king, the kingship of God. And therefore, their inability to stand against the enemies of God. 
Because the Lordship of God is not working itself out and they're not trusting that. That's, that's what we're going to see when we come into this story. We point, this point of a representative warfare, this duel, a contest of champions rather than a battle actually. They want to end once and for all the animosity between the Philistines and Israel. Uh, Israel which still today rages on, by the way, in Gaza, uh, in the same area where this was taking place. I realize in this text is often, it's a classical text, often abused by many preachers to exalt principles or behaviors by which a believer can, let's say, slain your spiritual giant or, so to speak, dare to be like David and that's all. I want to see that that is a very superficial, kind of more realistic way to look at the passage, sadly predominant in churches today. Uh, even last Tuesday I went to the meeting of the association and uh, we, there was this sermon about Jericho and your Jericho and mustering up enough faith for yourself uh, and that's all that it takes to then overcome. I mean, as much as those principles are true, what is missing in the picture? The gospel is missing. And, and it's a very man-centered way to look at that what is happening here in redemptive history. There's much more to this story than a child Sunday school about a lad killing a giant. And uh, to the point that, that some uh, reformed people have said, you know, uh, Matt Chandler, I think in particular, oh, you are not David, to kind of counteract this way of reading this passage. Yes, David is an example of faith and courage, but there's far more than that in the story of David, and particularly this story. In the overall redemptive history in 1 Samuel, the acts of God are the focus, not David himself. And you see, the eyes that we need to have are to be on God and his ability to deliver, whether man is weak or not. It's not about us. We are not David. Goliath is not our debt or a boss at work. The point of the story is definitely greater than our individual lives. See, Imagine this Goliath. What this Goliath is here is a, is a giant that is terrifying. It cannot be killed. And yet is overcome by a small man that kills what cannot be killed humanly. This theme is found in, in, in any parts of the Bible. What is more undefeatable than sin? What is more undefeatable than death? And as we look at ourselves in the story, we are actually the people of God that are here in the story terrified and did nothing to deliver themselves from the enemies of God, who need another one to step in to deliver them from such dreadful enemy. God's people need to understand that the anointed Messiah that can conquer the giant, that we cannot conquer sin, but the finished work of Christ conquers death with a single shot. The good news that, uh, that as you trust the Lord, you will be saved by this anointed Messiah, the son of David. David is here and elsewhere a type of Christ from the line of Judah. Yes, he is the anointed Messiah from Bethlehem of lowly family, a shepherd boy without outward appearance to impress us. Envied, hated by his brethren, bringing a kingdom not by force, but through wisdom. Prudence, mercy, and eminent holiness. Here we have David, a sweet musician. And yet he slays the enemies of God. 
And particularly here, this huge and terrible creature that, like the devil, has great strength, pride, and mighty armies. David saves God's people from this eminent danger. And in the same way, the Messiah, the son of David, will save God's people at a time of their extremities. Now, don't get me wrong. I still think there remains for us an example of faith and courage as a story. Wonderful example of that, but we don't want to truncate that. But definitely there's more at stake than a mere battle. The power of the God of Israel is at stake here, friends. God's honor has been defiled by the heathen giant. And now God steps in. The reason little David slains big Goliath is not because of his own strength. He's described here in the story as a defenseless little boy. It's not just his faith or courage alone, but it's because of his honoring God above his life. He has this concern for the honor of God, and for that, God honors him. That is the way in which David is, unlike Saul, unlike Israel, a man reflecting the heart of God. So let's look now at our story. What is the problem here in verses 1 through 11? Well, we have a problem with this Goliath, this giant. He's tall and well-armed. Verse 1 sets our story in uh, Ephesh Damin, which is 17 miles southwest of Jerusalem. On the floor of the valley, literally, that means a boundary of blood. That tells you that this was frequently a spot and a scene for bloody conflicts between the Philistines and Israel already. And we are in Judah. The tribe from where David and not Saul comes from. And imagine, obviously, the depiction of this story with this ditch or valley between two hills. And there's the Philistines on one side and Saul and the Israelites on the other side. However, we don't find any battle here. They're not fighting. No one is moving. And why is the reason? Verse 4 tells us. We have a champion, a fighter, a very mighty soldier, we could say. There, standing in the gap between those two armies, you have a Philistine hero, Goliath. The man between the two armies, what follows is the most detailed description of Scripture of a warrior. I mean, have you ever watched a context in TV or whatever? They obviously have to go in a list of all the victories of the person that they're presenting. It makes him obviously look invincible. And whoever else dares to challenge him melts at the thought of hearing all that list of things. That's what's happening here in our text. There's an impressive, incredibly tall, nine feet, almost ten feet, giant. Now, it might look strange for a modern reader, but actually, it was common back then to have giants. There's been footprints found in archaeological sites in the Middle East, sometimes more than even five fingers, as described in the scripture, of giants, often implied as military men. And measures like this are attested by sources both in the Bible and outside the Bible. Now, if it wasn't enough to look at his, his armor, look at the bronze helmet, which uh, bronze was unavailable to the Israelites. He has a coat of mail, which is impenetrable to arrows. It looked like scales, okay? Just like the scales, by the way, that you would look upon a snake, upon a serpent. He appeared, in other words, invincible. It's like all the Philistines, they're trusting in their own superior military resources, and they're putting Israel at, at their ends. Now, this coat of mail reminds us here of this broader back battle in Scripture, the undefeatable snake 
who brought sin, who brought death into the world. This theme of a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it's all over in the Old Testament. Reminding us that this fight is actually against the seed of the promise, the seed of the woman, the believers, particularly in the line of David, Christ, the future Messiah, who is indeed the battling here against the seed of the ancient serpent, the en enemies of God's people, the sons of Cain. What Jesus did, friend, at the cross is indeed foreshadowed here for us. He comes from the line of David and will slay the ancient serpent just like David did. Now the text comments to the complete measure of his coat. All these details about his armor to, to point to this fact that he's actually undefeatable. Verse 6 and 7 gives us other parts of the body and he's shielded from any possible attack. I mean, what are you, how are you going to fight this man? And so the result in the arms of Israel is they're terrified. Verse 8 to 10, Goliath is breaking the silence and picture this strong voice and the ground is shaking. He advances, he boldly challenges and insults the, the Israel army for being cowards. He challenged them to a fight. Give me a man. And he promised this bait, slavery for the loser. Now, this is a high stake because Goliath is sure that he will win and the Israelites will, will, will fall. And at this point, all Israel are dismayed and greatly afraid, as verse 11 says. I mean, they lost courage. They're shaken, terrified. And that's, that word is repeated in verse 24. Everyone is wetting in his pants, you could say. The point is no one wants to dare to fight with this giant. Why? Because ultimately they, they fear men. And I want to say if they have forgotten God. And because of that, they remain powerless. They are rejected by God under Saul because they don't have anymore any godly leadership. Remember the last time disobedience of Saul... Saul ultimately has lost all of his strength here. He's pathetic. He has lost all of his courage. He has lost all of his vision to lead. Why? Because he knows that he has sinned. He knows he has not repented. And he knows that God has abandoned him. That is why sin ultimately leads you to, to be stagnant, to be paralyzed. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. What we see here is that the seed of the serpent in this invincible giant, that's what, what's before this invincible giant, has come again to bite the frightened people of God. Who are we actually in this story? We are, the description of Goliath is everything you would consider as undefeatable, intimidating. Israel's worst fears, our sin, our death. I mean, no one can fight against such enemies and prevails. We indeed are more often than not, not like David, but actually like Saul and the, all the Israelites in the stories. We are afraid. We are like a leaf shaken by the winds, unable out of our own carnal sources to overcome this giant of sin and death. And the problem also in all the army, including Saul at this point, is that they lack the Holy Spirit. David had just been filled with the Holy Spirit at his anointing. And this shows up in our interest, the second point there, verse 12 to 30. David now has interest with Goliath. And there we see the providential, the way in which God's providence is at work here. Look at that. Verse 12 to 15, David fits in the story this way. 
that secretly had been anointed king of Israel by Samuel. And here God demonstrates before all Israel that, that David is God's chosen one. So you have elderly brothers of David. They're in the battle. David is just the youngest boy. He goes back and forth to tempt the sheep in Bethlehem of his father. They're, they're not too far from each other. I mean, uh, this valley is just behind, beyond the hill country of Judah. And so he's just doing the servant's work here. He fulfills the family obligations. There's no promising beginning. Uh, the bigger in the family actually attempt to be warriors, but no one in Jesse's family took heart what they just witnessed with the prophet Samuel coming to their house and anointing their younger sibling. Perhaps they're still in the dark. But in verse 16, the, the, this whole challenge didn't just take one day, okay? Goliath is going on and off 40 days and 40 nights with his challenge. And no one for 40 days among the entire army of Israel dared to come forward. I mean, this is a shameful situation. Imagine Goliath day after day going on insulting and mocking Israel and their God. And David now, he's going with, by his father Jesse in verse 17 to 22 to bring some food to the brothers and to the army and the soldiers. And even through such an unlikely mean, God is at work here. David comes to the battlefield and he starts to ask bold questions. He heard of Goliath's words, verse 23 verse 25. I mean, everyone was shaking about the armor of Goliath, but David... He's focused on something else. He's pondering the insults from Goliath more than he pondered his look. He's pondering the honor of God here. Over and over, the promise given by Saul to whoever kills Goliath is his question. And in verse 26, notice the words of David here. To help you see his different and right focus in this story. Who is this uncircumcised who is seek to defy the armies of the living gods? That is his faith that he sees this heathen who does he thinks he is to reproach and taunt the ranks not just of Israel not Saul but of the living God and that is the word that he repeats here in verse 26 in verse 36 and verse 27 David is like a guy coming in the place of an accident he states the obvious that everyone else had missed and that could solve the problem trust in God and verse 28, the brothers of David hear this little brother and they're jealously paternalizing, rebuking him. What's your business? You should keep the flocks home while we, the big boys, are at war. They're very, very harsh at, at him. However, they are the actual coward of the situation. They accuse David of pride, which is obviously not the case. And they will be proved wrong. But in verse 29 and 30, David defends himself and persists, asks those questions to the soldiers. Despite the people attempt to discourage him, that tells you that faith, as Oswald Chambers once said, faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. That amidst such hesitancy, from all the people of God, providentially, here comes this boy who treasures God's honor so much that he's little concerned about the obstacle. And we see here again the hand of providence. You remember we went through the book of Ruth and we saw the providence of God there. Uh, remember that David is, uh, uh, David's great-grandma is actually Ruth. So providential leading here is once again coming to the picture. 
to, toward this issue that he must solve. God has ordained this to pass through no other mean but these. That no matter how debasing it looks at first, no matter how many days to wait, the aspect of the providence of God is the great comfort that we get from this ordeal here. As a believer, you may be tossed and threatened by the perils of life that no matter even those around you have lost confidence in you, like the brothers of David, but not so with God, not so with his ever kind providence. But again, the focus is not so much on circumstance as much as learning where the strength of David truly lies, the zeal that he has to uphold the honor of God. The point is, who is this giant compared to the one who empowers us if we walk, if we dare to walk in his ways? It's that David is factoring God's power as he recalls the countless ways God has delivered his people over and over throughout the history of Israel. But also, I want to say he walks in his integrity. Friends, when you walk in your integrity, you can trust the Lord, even in the face of greatest obstacles. When you're so wrapped up in God, when you are so taken by His greatness, then all your problems come under the right light. That Goliath remains just a dwarf. If you compare him to the living God that he seeks to defile. That's what's the key about David's here. Not his outward strength, you will see. Not even his own courage, but his faith flows toward God. He fears God more than he fears the giant. His love and his thoughts about God inform and strengthen his faith. Now let's look at the proposal that David comes up with against Goliath in verse 31 to 39. He wants to, now he challenged Goliath to fight him, despite the fact that he's young and unexperienced in battle. You, you got to admire the boldness of David here. That he catches the attention of the generals and they report it to the king. Now, we would have expected a taller man than even Saul, which is very tall, to step in and fix the situation. Instead, no, you have this six feet tall little David who, who comes in. What does that tell you? That friend's stature does not matter a bit to God. Outward appearance, once again, just in chapter 16, does not matter to God. Makes me think of George Whitfield. If you ever look at a painting of George Whitfield, I mean... He, he, his eyes was, weren't even straight. His voice was considered a little bit awkward. And yet in, in the weakness of the means, God was glorified and used that man greatly for God's kingdom, ultimately giving the glory to God. But in verse 32, let no one heart fail. That's the response of David. Let no one's heart fail because of Goliath. Someone saying, I got this king. Again, the theme as we look to some episode from the life of David is coming to the surface here. We're testifying to David as man after God's own heart in the sense that the testimony is right here. He, he goes after and fights against no matter the enemy because his, his trust, his whole perspective is toward the honor of God. Verse 33, obviously, after the proposal, you can imagine the laugh among King Saul, they're stating the obvious. You're just a boy. Goliath has been a warrior since he was a boy. You're inexperienced. You're just a teenager. This is definitely not a job for you. And who's saying this? The coward Saul who is doing nothing. He's paralyzed. 
However, David wants to fight Goliath, despite the fact that he has no weapon. Look at verse 34 to 29. David gives a story to reinforce his proposal, telling uh, Saul that back when he was a shepherd, he killed beasts. But again, the force of the confidence is coming to the surface. Defy the armies of the living God. I will go and fight this man who defies the army of the living God. And verse 37. The Lord who has delivered me will deliver me again. David is confident here of God's deliverance answering in faith. Uh, I know that at school where I teach students at the end of prayer time are asked to uh, repeat out loud what they are thankful for. And this is supposed to kind of encourage them to proceed in their daily duties and challenges. Sometimes what God has done in the past will do in the future. This is how the faithfulness of God to us in the past is the incentive for us to trust Him for the future. Now Saul doesn't know, doesn't know anything of such faith, okay? He, he, just, he just doesn't know how to respond. So he says, well, let, let him go. If he, if he wants to die, go forward. Let him die. And he lets David go. But in 30, verse 38... Before he lets him go, he proposed Saul still a carnal strategy to uh, defeat the enemy of God. He gives him his weapon, his armor. But look at verse 39. David refuses. He takes that all away. He says, I have not tested. I'm not used to this armor. I had no experience with such things. That tells you that unlike Goliath, David comes trusting only in the Lord without carnal Trust in outward things. That's why Corrie ten Boom once said, Faith sees the invincible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. In other words, David, in his zeal to defend God's honor, proposed now the solution to challenge, but not, but not a solution that makes sense humanly. A solution that makes sense only if you factor in God. I mean, David is an example of not just faith, but of a faith that is te tested, a faith that is seasoned. That God's faithfulness cannot be detached from the success and bravery of his faith. In other words, David is confident that the Lord will deliver him in his battle because of the past. The past is the antidote to the face, the future obstacle that he faced. That the ultimate deliverance that we, have, we see accomplished thousand years from this point forward, two thousand years from where we are at, that we now... As believers are fighting a battle that God already won. A sin and a death whose power over our lives has already been broken. That the better ultimate anointed Messiah has come. The son of David. And he sealed the victory for God's people over all the enemy of God. But let us also ponder how God uses the unexpected to confound and defeat the powerful. That it is not by power. It is not by might. But it is by my spirit, says the Lord. I mean, we will all be called to face opposition, struggles, particularly temptations, I want to say. We should not be surprised by them, first of all. If that ever becomes the case, however, don't focus so much on the outward appearance. As do the inward realities of God's word. That God intentionally chooses your weakness. He intentionally creates weakness in your life. He bypasses your natural skill to actually provide victory in a fight, so that he gets the glory. That is the action of David toward Goliath. Our next point, verse 40 to 51. First, notice he doesn't go straight forward. He rebukes 
Goliath. He has the, the, the audacity to rebuke him and his words and his blasphemies ultimately. And in verse 40, at this point, David does, does what he's used to do as a shepherd. He doesn't have an armor. He takes a few stones and put them in his shepherd bag, a sling in his hand. And that, that is no one, no one will, will go to battle with that. That is not a strategy for battle, isn't it? But if you look at his real history, it's always like that, isn't it? Whether it's Joshua and sounding the horns, whether it's Gideon and the 300 that he chose because they lick their, the, the water, which is not a criteria. And the, 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 the point of this is this, that impossible victories from defenseless Israelites are what God used to get the ultimate glory. Over and over again. Because friends, victory doesn't come from the bow. Victory doesn't come from the sword. Victory doesn't come from horses and chariots. Victory comes from the arm of the Almighty God. And you dwelling with this heart that is closely connected with the Almighty God. So that He now empowers you. And, uh, and, and even to face the Goliath here in verse 42. And when Goliath sees David, he disdains him. He said, like, you are a youth. You are ruddy and good looking. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He's despising David. He invites David to just go back because he doesn't want to kill this little boy. He's overconfident. He's cursing David in the name of Philistine God. He's full of pride. Like people who blaspheme God's name all the time. Is there one who will stand up? And stop and silence such blasphemy. That is David. And verse 45 and 47, the response of David is the key here. You come with weapons, but I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. David is here including an entire different realm. All the trust that he has is in God. In fact, he acts as God's representative here. That God is the true warrior in charge of the situation. And he has, Goliath has defied and challenged and treated the true God with contempt. That is the, 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 the crux of the matter. He's ridiculing God for 40 days straight without being challenged. He cursed and mocked the Lord. This is what burdens David the most. That he's ready to go against him. Even if alone. I do remember Oliver Cromwell was... In battle, he was facing a battle against the king. He didn't have any reinforcement. He was ready to go to battle alone and with a confidence of being able to defeat men. And the reason being because he believed he was fighting a righteous cause. And as he claimed, Christ and not man is king. So David here reversed Goliath's threat and prophesies of what he will do. I will strike you. I will take your head off. And... The purpose of all this is not so that I get the glory because I'm a great and mighty man. No, but that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That the God gets the glory. Not just a God, but an extraordinary God who fights for Israel. These are the same words that Solomon will use dedicating the temple in Jerusalem. The same words that Ezekiah pleads when the pagan Sennacherib threatens to take Jerusalem. Goliath 
It's, it better tremble because he is about to face God for his mockery. It's almost as saying the point is not me, David, here, but it's the honor of God that must be vindicated now and magnified even through my weakness. And it doesn't matter what, it, what the means are, even without my age, even without weapons, God's glory is preserved. This will also serve as a lesson to Israel, a lesson to throughout their history, whether under Moses in the wilderness or during the judges, all the way to the incarnation, the way that Christ defeats Satan, sin and death with the shameful cross, that the Lord does not save with sword or spears, but the ba battle is the Lord's. And David again by faith declares that God gives Goliath into his hands. The problem of Israel in asking for a king was exactly that. That they got themselves a tall giant Saul, the warrior. However, it was a failure because he did not obey God. The heart beyond outward strength was not right. So now that that is shown, their strength is no more strength at all. They cannot stand. However, David can and he kills Goliath with a stone. Verse 48 to the end of our text. At this point, David approaches Goliath. He takes the stone from his back and struck Goliath in the forehead. And he brings the whole thing to an end by a sling and a stone. No sword, friends. No shield, no armor. God did it. The giant dies in one single shot. With the complete surprise of both armies. Just, he doesn't just hit him, but he finishes him off. In verse 51, he cuts his head off with the sword of the enemy. At this, the entire army, obviously, of the Philistines run for their lives. D.L. Moody says, David was the last one we would have chosen to fight the giant. But he was chosen of God, and that's all that matters. That David is driven by his trust in God and a desire to defend the honor of God. He therefore succeeds in slaying Goliath. And Goliath obviously shows us that pride goes before destruction. David is not only able to silence and rebuke him with his words. I mean, he obviously rebukes his blasphemy against the true God, but actually he puts him to death. He brings his defiance and pride to an end. That is a lesson for Israel and for the church throughout the ages. Idols, physical strength, boasting on outward sources, heights, that all of that is completely vain. The church has often, and I'm afraid is still today, believe the lie of Satan. That impressive things are all that matters. That trusting in our own resources rather than God is all that matters. As you see, friend, when the church faces oppositions from the world, we coward because we're not trusting in God. But here's David's response, point to the, the need to stand firm. That faith in God is the determining factor. That David's answer is what God is looking for. The weapons of war are irrelevant. Human instruments cannot deliver. All that delivers is a childlike faith and trust in God against all odds. Utterly trust in God's ability to save no matter what. That is where the battle belongs to the Lord. If the God of Israel is involved, that's all that matters. Don't you long to see that work from God in our midst? All that it takes is to let Him lead, to surrender, to rely on our, not our own strength, to have Him take over, that Lord, your power, not my feeble resources, all that is needed for us as a church is God's power at work. Precisely through weak means, 
that we witness the miraculous way in which God uses the faith of weak but determined servants of God to de defeat overwhelming obstacles. But unlike Saul's, David's faith is at work. It's a working faith. You know, Saul is paralyzed. David's faith leads to action, leads to trust, even through unlikely means. Isn't the way God acted for us in Jesus? The better son of David. I mean, he is the champion that helps us to face the greater fall of sin and death that is unconquerable, humanly speaking. All of our fears, our weakness, all of our sin points to our need of a Savior, which God now provides through a man after his heart, the anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. And David's victory here points to this needs of this champion. The gods use the shameful, worthless means of the cross to accomplish a mighty deliverance. I can see how David's concern for God's honor, however, being vindicated is the main focus. The zeal for the reputation of the God of Israel is what the author wants you to focus upon. In fact, it is so clear that any, anyone over the whole earth will hear this story must realize that the God of Israel is the one true God. And that's why God placed this story right here in the book of Samuel. David, David didn't just hit Goliath in the head, however. What, what else he does? He cuts off his head. Just like Jesus one day crushed Satan's head under his feet. Friends, this is a decisive sign that the war is over by faith. However, this doesn't mean that we're not still in a, in a spiritual battle. Especially against our besetting sin. This story of cutting the head of Goliath teaches us that in our battle with sin, we take courage as we strive against sin. Whether you're lazy, whether you're prayerless, whether you're uh, gossiping, any other forms of sin. Don't allow sin to defy the power of Christ. Don't neutralize your sin, but be radical. You go to the source and the head from which sin proceeds. Be radical to find victory against your sin. Cut the head off and sin will not rise again. There is no half victory here. I was reminded of Bob Jennings, a godly minister who died, but he had this uh, story of Genghis Khan. And he was taking over the lands in Asia and he came into a Buddhist temple and there was a statue of Buddha staying right there. And they said, no, we have to keep that. We cannot take it. But Genghis Khan had to take the sword and cut the head and there was full of jewels inside of the statue. That is the same thing with our battle with sin. We must eradicate sin at the source or it comes back at us. And the victory that you find in Christ means that you have zero toleration of sin or sin will be killing you. And, and obviously our text ends with our last point, the victory over Goliath, the favor in battle, uh, the ending of our text, verses 52 to 58. Israelites are now emboldened by what happened. And they pursue their enemies till their cities for miles and miles away. This is a great victory. And, and David brings this, uh, the head of Goliath as a trophy to Jerusalem. And he also finds favor with the king. Verse 58, 55 to 58, Saul cannot contain himself. And he says, who on earth is this boy? So he's summoned to present himself to the king. And David has proven to be the, more than just a hard player here. There's something special about David. Could this be the man Samuel went to find to replace me? Indeed he is. And that will start in the following chapters, all the controversy. But what we see here again is 
Inspired by David's act, Israel now overcomes the Philistines and Saul is forced to acknowledge what David did. That David's promise that he was holding on to was true. That victory doesn't come by numbers, but by the Spirit. Now the Philistine army is on the rands in terrors while God's people, they find their strength again. They realize that the presence of God, the power of God is what they needed the most to fight this battle. The sad reason why in our country, I think of America, I mean, I, I'm not American. One thing that non-Americans appreciate about America is the courage of this country. The, and I want to say that all that courage is gone right now. People are shattering the value of the sacrifice and the courage of America is gone. But why is it so? It's because of faithfulness. When faithfulness is gone, people shake for no reason. Friends, all that God's people needs in, is the confirming presence of God and the power of God. The means don't matter. Victory is ours in Christ. Let me conclude here uh, with looking at David from this story is that we see that David indeed was a great savior for God's people. And he points to the ultimate anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. This story also teaches us that it is not strength or height or skill or fame that will ever make the difference. Not even our faith, I want to say, or courage alone can get us through facing not just the supposed giants of our life, but most importantly, the power of sin, the power of death. It is invincible through human means. That should cause far greater terror of the coming eternity in hell for anyone who has not found any power against such enemy. Friends, we cannot win. We cannot overcome this final battle. Fear, despair before our eyes. On our own, we cannot do this. We're nothing. It's worse if we start trusting in things and human sources to defend us and shield us like Saul who has now disobeyed and he's holding on to all the little things he's got and he cannot do anything. He's paralyzed because of an unclean conscience due to his compromises. And therefore comes David instead who does it, but also who is radical in killing sin. We must realize that in Christ we have already won and that's why we have confidence. So friends, don't shrink in terror under the weight of problems in this life. With God, indeed, we shall do valiantly. That's all we need. God is our strength. The battle is His. His honor, the glory, is the goal. If only we remember that, we will be able to keep the threats of the wicked in perspective instead of shrinking in fear. When this world shrinks, when there's a bad news, when there are giants, indeed, fears, threats, impossible situation, bad news, taking your heart away, challenges, whatever it is, this, short, this story shows us that even without outward strength, even with weak means, that faith and courage doesn't come from you and me. It comes from our eyes fixed on the glory of God revealed through the Son of David, Jesus Christ, who is now brought to bear upon your situation. That's what it means to be after God's heart. To have faith in God and God alone. Yet even with a sling and a stone, I love the words of this song by Casting Crowns. I used to listen to it when I first came to Christ. But the voice of truth tells me a very different story. The voice of truth says, do not be afraid. And the voice of truth says, this is for my glory. 
Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. Let us pray. Oh God.